All right. Good morning, everybody. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18 is where we will be. And um, if you um, have incredible memory, uh, we were here last week in Luke chapter 18. And uh, one of the things that we've kind of not planned to do, but it's kind of worked out this week, is uh, or this series, is we have taught a parable and... As we've studied the parable, we looked at the context of the parable, and we're like, man, that one right before this one is really good. And we end up just teaching the one before it the week after. Uh, So I apologize for us moving around, but we've done that like three times in this series. Um, So while you're turning there, let me just say welcome to you, especially if you're a guest. My name is Parker, and I have the uh, humble um, privilege to serve here along with our elders um, as a pastor here at High Point. And uh, we're glad you're here. Glad the Lord brought you to us this morning. And... uh, As Marley said, we want to thank you for jumping in last week and uh, just having a fun time, uh, being in the church together, um, breaking bread together, having a fun opportunity with our children together. And uh, it was a blast at the trigger, trunk or treat, trick or treat, yay, the the whole thing. Um, And I want to thank a couple of folks, um, Colin Hardwick and Zeke Henderson. I don't know. I think they're in the first service. Um, They dropped a hat to be here. we had a couple of our grill masters go down with sickness and the flu and stuff. And it was just awesome to call some other people in our body. And one of them was on a plane in Houston and he was like texting me. And I don't, I don't know how this is working, but he got home and made it here. And that wasn't like a backhanded compliment either. Like, hey, thank these two guys and where were y'all? No, like we have a great church. All of the men in this body are phenomenal and really help and step up. And all of you showed up last week and helped out a lot. So um, decorated your trunks and all the things. So it was a blast. Uh, but I want to say thanks to them, and then um, give you just a ref, uh, kind of a preview of where we're going. This is our last parable that we're going to teach at this campus. Um, East Memphis is going to do a couple more. Um, we're going to break here, and next week we're going to start a series on the church. And uh, historically, um, before even Will Franco got here, uh, when High Point would talk about the church, we would kind of just talk about ourselves and the things we got going on. We're not going to do that. Uh, we're going to talk about biblically what the church is. Um, We mentioned about a month ago that um, we are in the process of planting this congregation and this church to be its own independent, autonomous church. And uh, as we do that, uh, we need to level set on what the church is, uh, what God designed it to be, how it's intended to function, and all of those kind of things. So um, hear me, we will be looking at this book, um, not looking at ourselves or anything like that. But uh, if you are a member of this body, obviously, if you're a guest, you're always welcome. But if you're a committed member of this body, I would highly encourage you to make it a priority to be here over the next couple of weeks um, so we can talk about us. We can talk about the church, uh, the people, not the building. So um, should be fun. Um, want to remind you of that. And I think that's it. Let's uh, jump into our passage this morning. Uh, I'm going to read for us, and then I'll give you the context and stuff after we pray. But we're going to read Luke 18, uh, verses 1 through 8. So if you're there, you can uh, jump in. If you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, um, and I'll read this for us, and then we'll pray. It says this in uh, verse 1 of Luke 18. It says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said... In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. 
so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to teach us. God, thanks for your word. Father, I pray that it would wash over us this morning. God, confront us, challenge us, convict us, conform us to the image of Christ even more today as we behold you and your word. Um, God, your spirit wrote this word and your spirit is inside of us, um, those who are in Christ. And uh, God, make us more like you. Make us more like your son. Um, God, I just confess from the get-go, just from the reading of your word, God, that I do not pray as I should, that I do not pray as often as I should. God, much different from this widow, I will pray about something twice and think I've given it a lot of effort. Um, But God, I'm grateful that the um, willingness for you to act is not based on my faith. It is not based on my persistence. It's solely based on your character. So God, help us to endure. Help us to keep going. Help us to keep seeking your face. And uh, God, make us a people of prayer and a people of endurance. And it's Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. All right, so as we jump into this parable, um, and man, we picked a good one to end on. Um, at first reading of this parable, you're like, hey, it's a widow. She keeps asking. She gets what she wants. There's so much more to this um, parable that I'm excited to dive into and talk about with you. Um, but we need to know the context of the parable as we dive into it, because um, if you look at chapter 18, verse 1, it begins with um, the word and, and I don't think that's an accident. Um, in fact, I would argue that this is one of those moments where the um, chapter breaks and the verse numbers and those kind of things can almost lead us astray a little bit. And if you're unaware, um, when Luke wrote this letter, um, when Paul wrote his letters, um, he did not write the number one and then what he wanted to say and then the number two. He did not write in verse numbers or chapter breaks or divisions or headings. All of those were added later about the 13th century. And they're helpful. They're not sinful. They're not bad. They're helpful, right? You can find Luke chapter 18 very easily because it's labeled chapter 18 and it's got verse numbers and those things. It helps us memorize verses, all of that. But I want you to know that when Luke wrote it, he didn't write in chapter breaks and headings and divisions. He just wrote the letter to a man named Theophilus and said, hey, I wanna give you an orderly account of what God is doing in the person and work of Jesus Christ to bring good news of great joy to all people. Theophilus was a Gentile. Luke was writing to this Gentile saying, hey, the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. And all throughout Luke's letters, we see that the gospel was for all people. You don't get out of the first couple chapters before Luke is saying that, hey, this is for all people. The Christmas story, good news of great joy for all. And the parables were actually told predominantly to the Gentiles. And Luke records the majority of the parables that we have in the New Testament, which is why we've been in Luke a good bit in this series. Um, We're actually in this section where Luke is telling a lot of parables. Um, It's often referred to as the Lucan parables, this section from about Luke um, 13 or 12 all the way um, to 18, even some of 19. Luke is teaching in parables. Uh, Luke 15 is one of the most popular chapters when it comes to parables. You've got the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son, all of those. Luke is recording Jesus's teaching in parables in this section And I tell all of that to to tell you this, Um, the and there, I think, 
most definitely connects back to the end of chapter 17. So we have to look at the end of chapter 17 to see what's going on here because I think they are highly connected. This is not Jesus just breaking out and giving us advice on prayer. Now, could he do that? Yes, he's Jesus. He can do whatever he wants. But he is giving us this charge, this teaching on prayer in light of what he has been teaching about. And he's been teaching about the, what theologians call the parousia, the arrival of the king. When Jesus comes back, when the kingdom returns, when the the king returns and ushers in the physical kingdom, what it's going to be like. And if you've got a paper Bible and you want to flip back or you've got your device and just hit the arrow to go back to chapter 17, if you look at the end of 17, Jesus is talking about how quick the kingdom's going to come back, that it's going to be swift. It's going to be something that you can't see coming. He even says that you're not going to be able to look at it and go like, hey, here it comes. We've got, you know, a month. We've got two weeks. Like, let's do what we need to do to get ready. Like, almost like you can see a storm rolling in from the beach. Anybody ever been to, you know, one of the condos and you see the storm way out there and you're like, okay, we've got, you know, hours to get ready or whatever it is. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be one of those things where we know it's coming and we can see it and we prepare for it. He says it's going to be swift and it's going to be like the days of Noah when everyone was going about their merry way and then suddenly a flood hit the earth. It's going to be like that. It's going to be like D-Day, like an invasion. Like it's just going to show up ready or not. Here it is. He says there's gonna be two people laying in bed and in a moment, one will be gone and one will be left. There's these two women grinding away at this grain or wheat or they're working and in a moment, one will be gone and one will remain. That it's going to come quickly and it's going to be swift and no one's going to be able to see it coming. And in light of that, he says this parable. He connects it with this and. That word, that particle in the Greek can also mean but, or it can mean now, it can mean also. So he's connecting this parable to what he has just told. It's not just general prayer advice. It's in light of the fact that this kingdom is coming and it's coming swiftly. So let's look at what he says in verse 18. It says this, I mean in verse one of chapter 18. It says, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, if you notice in that verse, what's so fascinating about verse one is Jesus gives us, or Luke writes and gives us the reason or the purpose or the, you know, the, the summary of the parable. Here's what you're supposed to take away from the parable. He gives it to us. Oftentimes, when Jesus teaches in parables, we don't get the purpose or the meaning of it until after. Sometimes we don't get it. Sometimes Jesus just says it and walks off. And his disciples are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they get with him and they're like, what does that even mean, Right? What did you just say? And sometimes he'll explain it. Sometimes, you know, he'll teach something else like the parable of the sower and then he'll come back. You know, you have the parable of the sower and then you've got some interaction and then he'll come back and explain it. This time, Jesus gives us the purpose of the parable or Luke writes it and gives us the purpose and the, the intent of the parable from the get-go. Here's what we're supposed to learn from the parable. Here's what we're supposed to do. That they and that we, the hearers, ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the goal. So in light of that, whatever we come up with as we walk through these verses, we have to interpret these verses in light of that because that's the purpose. That's the goal. This is the reason why Jesus told this parable. And you're like, well, who's Luke? How does he know what Jesus' motives are? Well, as we talked about last week, Luke wrote exactly what God wanted him to write. All scripture, even the Luke and parables are God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3. 
They're inspired by God and they're useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. That anytime Luke or any gospel writer, any writer in the Bible ascribes a motive to someone, you can take it to the bank. Why? Even God's motives. Because God's the one who wrote the book. God's the one who told Luke exactly what to write. And God wanted us to know that the point of this parable is that the listeners ought always to pray and not lose heart. So whatever we come up with has got to be something close to that, right? It's gotta be interpreted in light of the goal. What's also interesting about this though is if you're like me and you sit down this week and you start to study this parable and you, you read the phrase, ought always to pray, you might, if you're like me, instantly feel a little guilty, right? Because I fail at this all the time. Ought always to pray, like continuously, always. And I want to give some grace to us because um, what I think Jesus means here when you look at the word, when you look at the Greek, is when he says ought always to pray, um, he doesn't necessarily mean continuously. Um, I would argue it's a continually. And those are different things. Continuously means you don't stop. It means you don't talk to your wife. It means you don't eat food. It means you don't sleep. You're just continuously praying, right? I don't think that's what he's getting at here. Jesus has sovereignly ordained that you would have a job and you would get married and you would play with your kids and all of those kind of things. But I do think it means continually. The, the consistent mark of the believer is that our lives are marked by consistent prayer. That it's not random, it's not just at dinner time, it's not just when we need something or when things go bad in our lives, that the consistent mark of a believer's life is that we would continually be in prayer. Does that make sense? Not necessarily continuously, and if you're like me, that doesn't make me feel any better because I still fail at doing it continually, right? I still do. I still fail at it. I still wanna do my own thing, live life my own way, all of those kind of things. Um, but we'll see that there's grace for us in this moment too. But I want you to see what, that's what he means by that. Does that make sense? Let's look at verse two. It says this, here's the parable. So we got the purpose that we would ought always to pray, that we would continually be a people of prayer and that we would not lose heart and not give up. Um, that Greek word also means not be discouraged, not give up. Um, he says this, now here's the parable starting in verse two. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So you've got this person in office who doesn't fear God and he doesn't fear man. And some of you are like, how does someone like that get elected, right? Take it by faith. People get elected who don't fear God and don't respect man. Um, that was meant to be a joke because it happens all the time. Um, and it's always gonna happen. And we can laugh at that, but here's why. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun that we live in a world today, and by the world, I mean the world in general, we want the blessings of God's kingdom, we want the peace of God's kingdom, we want the joy of God's kingdom, but we don't want the king. We don't want God. It was Israel's problem, and it's our problem. There is nothing new under the sun. Here we are again, wanting the peace that comes, um, that the Bible describes, the joy that the Bible describes, the freedom that the Bible describes, but we don't want the king. And it's the same thing that Israel went through back in the Old Testament. In fact, the darkest books of the Bible are when Israel was doing their own thing. They were trying to be their own king, be their own God. They said, no, God, we don't even want you to pick a king. Well, even before that, in the book of Judges, the prominent verse in the book of Judges or the prominent phrase is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
humanity doing what they thought was right, being their own king, being their own judge, choosing their own adventure, doing their own thing. And the book of Judges is the most X-rated book in all of the Bible. And you've got man, finite humans, doing what they think is right in the moment. And then that doesn't work out, and they say, hey, we need a king, and God says, well, I'll give you a king. Like, no, 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 no. Like, we want, you know, the blessings of a kingdom, but we don't want you to pick the king. We'll pick the king. And they pick the tall, handsome, strong Saul, and you see how that works out for them, right? We want all the blessings of God in our world today. We just don't want God to be our king. And it's the same issue that Israel had over and over again. And it's, we can, you know, hate the culture, all those things. I'm not advocating for that, but we're the same way. All of us at one point in our lives said, hey God, I know you have a way for me to live. I know you've given me instruction. I know you've given me your word, but I'm gonna be my own king. I'm gonna do my own thing and I'm gonna pursue everything that I think is gonna give me freedom. And what's the irony of that? Is we chase after all the things we think are gonna give us freedom and we end up in bondage. Everything in this world that we ran after, that we thought would give us freedom, put us in chains. And the paradox of the gospel is that when you enslave yourself to Christ's lordship, to following his word, you actually find the freedom that you've always longed for. That if you live for your own freedom, you end up in bondage. But if you become a slave to God and run after him and chase after him and his word, you actually find more freedom than you could ever imagine. It's so fascinating that those things are backwards. It's my story, it's your story. James refers to this book as the perfect law that gives freedom. But so many times we say, ah, no thanks God, here's what I want in the moment, here's what I wanna do right now, here's how I wanna handle my money or my marriage or my thought life, whatever it is, right? I'll hold on to this. But notice what we learn about this king or this judge. He neither feared God nor he respected man. So Jesus wants us to see this, that this man, he doesn't fear God, so he's not going to be moved by morality at all. He has no standard of morality other than himself that is going to move him or sway him to act. There's no moral law. There's no moral law giver. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't fear God. He is the moral law. He's the moral law giver. Whatever he wants to do in the moment is what he's gonna do. So he's not moved by morality, but he's also not moved by compassion. If you see it, he doesn't respect man either. So God's not gonna sway him to do anything and neither is kindness or brokenness or selflessness or compassion towards others. Like this man is his own standard of compassion, his own standard of morality, his own standard of goodness, nothing swaying him. Only what he wants to do in the moment. Do you see that? There's no higher standard other than his agenda, and there's no love for anyone else to move him to act. So you've got this judge. Remember, this is a made-up story, and Jesus has given us these characters. And then in verse three, it's, Jesus introduces another character. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So you've got this widow and contrast this widow with this male judge. And if you remember in the first century, males had all the dignity, all the rights, all of those things, um, all the freedom, all the ability to do things. This woman shows up, so she's got no leverage as a man, but she's also lost her man because he has died, because she's a widow. So she's got zero leverage. She has nothing to bribe the king with. She has nothing to offer the king for him to be swayed or to move on her behalf. The only thing she's got is her persistence. 
That's the only thing she brings. She just keeps on knocking, keeps on showing up, keeps on coming to the king. And she says this, give me justice against my adversary. Now, the word there, adversary, um, is in the Greek, it means your opponent or your adversary, um, someone against you. Uh, it's also the word in the Greek that um, is often used of Satan, where Peter writes, Satan, your adversary, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It also is the same word that's used there. Now, is this kind of like a hidden truth that Jesus is specifically talking about Satan here? No, it's a parable. He was saying that this woman had an adversary that was earthly. Uh, but for us, you could definitely trace this back to, hey, we have an adversary, if we're the woman, just like her, we are just as spiritually helpless as she was physically helpless, and we cry out to our judge for justice, but we don't. Paul even says, biblically, we don't have human adversaries. He says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers and the principalities and the evil spiritual realm, all of those things. That We don't have human adversaries. We have one adversary. We have the enemy and his schemes, we have our own sin that's within us, and we have the brokenness of this world that we navigate. And our world is broken. And just like the woman, I want us to put ourselves in the story and make it a little personal. Um, we see injustice all around us. And we cry out for justice all the time. There has been injustice in the world since Genesis 3. Since sin entered the world, since Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord and ate the apple, and everything we hate about the world, all the injustices of the world resulted and stemmed from that moment right there. The world is broken, there's injustice, there's hunger, there's hatred, there's violence, there's all the things that we hate about the world. And much like the woman, we cry out to our judge for justice. And I wanna talk about that for a minute because um, it's very nuanced and we can almost forget just how gracious we really want God to be. And, and don't hear what I'm not saying, I'll explain. Um, but we need to be pretty careful when we cry out and we say God is not just. Why? Because for God to fully and finally deal with injustice would mean what? God has to deal with me, right? There's a lot of injustice out there, but there's also a lot in here. I've sinned against him. I sin against him daily. I readily sin against my savior in my thoughts, in my actions, indeed by my nature and by choice. I sin against him. And for me to say God is not just, one would be theologically wrong as we'll see in just a minute, but two um, would be pretty arrogant for me to cry out and tell God to be just because that would mean he would have to deal with me. But it's, it's more than that. I'm not trying to tell you that to say that we don't pursue justice because we do. Scripture calls us to. And we can do that because God is just, as we'll see in just a second. Micah 6, what does he say? What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to do justice, to seek justice, to love mercy because we are not just and to walk humbly, right? Because we deserve God's justice and in Christ we get his mercy. But as we cry out for justice, I do want you to know it. So it doesn't mean we stop asking God for justice. Um, it doesn't mean that we quit. It doesn't mean we have to keep our mouths shut because we're sinners too and those kind of things. No, we cry out for it. We long for it, but we do it humbly. And we do it begging God for mercy. And we have to realize too, as Isaiah says, that God's ways are so much higher than our ways. 
His thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts. Um, Isaiah 55 says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. That when we think in minutes, God thinks in millennium, right? Like he thinks in thousands of years where when we think of minutes, God is working all things, not just my things, not just my circumstances. God works all things, not just the good things. He's working all things for my good and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. That God's working it all. But so many times we can stop asking for God to be just. We can stop asking for him um, to, to do things on our behalf. Remember the purpose of this is to not give up and to not quit asking. But we need to be careful. We need to approach it humbly because God is just. And God in his infinite wisdom, he will answer prayers as he sees fit. And God does not answer our prayers according to our watches or our will. He answers it according to his wisdom and his will. And God's sovereign and he's just. And on the one hand, we long for justice, but on the other hand, we remember that God is merciful and gracious and that we're deserving of his justice. Does that make sense? But I wanna be clear. God hears all prayers. God hears every prayer and God answers every prayer. He does. It's just that often we feel like we don't get the answer that we are wanting. And I wanna tell you, like, that's a legitimate concern. That's a legitimate fear. I don't want you to feel bad for, for calling out for justice, for going to the Lord, for the cancer to go away, or for this mental illness to subside, or for the marriage to get fixed, or whatever it is. No, God calls us to run to him, right? Cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He longs for us to do that. He welcomes our, he's infinitely sovereign and powerful and working all things, but he's also deeply personal and intimately wants you to bring those cares to him and not be anxious for anything, but by prayer with everything, let your request be made known to God. All that anxiety that wants to come out, I love the, the passiveness of that sentence. Let it come out and keep pushing it up to him. And he says, I'll give you my peace. <clears throat> he longs for us to come to him, but we often don't get the answer that we are wanting. And some of that <clears throat> is because my view of God's justice is often in line with my circumstances, isn't it? It often is. That my view on whether God is just or not is totally dependent on my circumstances, right? When I'm in a bad season, I think God's unjust. When I'm in a good season, I think God is just. And I am solely focused on myself. And both of those are wrong. God is always just. It is his character. It's his nature. God can never not be just. Everything he does is just. But we have to remember our time is different than God's. God can work all things for our good, not our circumstantial good, but our ultimate good, which is to know him and be conformed to the image of his son. And we can get upset so quickly and like I prayed earlier, we can pray about something a couple times and we can get discouraged. But we keep seeking, we keep praying according to this parable. But I wanna caution us too, we have to be okay uh, with God's character and his nature and his goodness, even if he tells us no. It doesn't mean we stop seeking his face. It doesn't mean we lose heart and give up. But we have to approach him and understand um, that God is infinitely wise, and sometimes he grants justice when we ask for it. Sometimes he waits. Sometimes he says, hey, that's gonna get paid when I return. But I wanna be clear. No single act of injustice will ever go unpunished. 
Everything we hate about the world, every death, every diagnosis, every wrongdoing, every thought, every evil deed, God sees all of it and God will avenge all of it. He will. Every single bit of it gets punished. And you need to hear that. It might not be in our lifetime, but none of it gets past his sight and none of it escapes his judgment. But the question this morning is, what do we do when we cry out for those things that biblically we see are in line with scripture? Like clearly that wasn't God's will for this. Clearly God doesn't want this person to pass or this person to struggle and he's not granting what we need. He's not doing what I ask. Um, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I don't know how you can discern when to, you know, God's telling me no or when he's telling me to keep, I, I don't know. I look at Paul and Paul says, you know, on the one hand in Ephesians 6, he says to pray without ceasing. And then on the other hand, he mentions in 2 Corinthians that he prayed about the thorn in his flesh three times and God told him no. And he's like, okay. I don't know how you reconcile the two of those, but I want you to look at it in 2 Corinthians 12. This is fascinating. Um, look at verse seven. It says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now stop there for a second. We don't like this kind of theology. Paul's an apostle. The Holy Spirit's given him revelations. He's writing scripture. He's sending letters. He's obviously, you know, gaining popularity and getting famous. And Paul says, so God wanting to humble me and keep me dependent on him gave me suffering. We go, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know about all that. And I would argue biblically that that's what's best for us. So many of us, when we, and, and I'm not making light of what you're praying for, seriously, I'm not trying to delegitimize anything that you're praying for, or asking, or walking through. All of it matters to God and it matters to us. But do not believe the lie that your soul will be satisfied if you get that earthly thing you're praying for. It won't, whatever it is. The, the earthly things we're longing for and asking for, the earthly relief or whatever it is, it will never satisfy our souls. And God loves us enough to where he will bring suffering into our lives for our good, to give us what matters most and our greatest good, that we would depend on him, that we would experience more of his grace. And Paul says, hey, all this great stuff was happening, all these revelations, so what does God do? He gives me a thorn to humble me so that I'll depend on him more, so that I'll walk with him more, and that's what Paul needs the most. Not something earthly and circumstantial, and although those things might help and bring temporary relief, they will never satisfy your soul. They will never complete you. And he says this, he even calls it a messenger of Satan to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For, this, for the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul says, hey, God gave me this struggle so that I would seek him more, that I would depend on him more because that's when he shines the most. That's when I'm most whole, when I'm walking with him. And if God were to give me more success, I would actually turn away from him. So he, he sends these storms and this trial and this struggle in my life so that I'll walk more intimately with him. And that's what's best for me because that's when he shines the brightest and that's when I'm at my strongest, when I'm dependent on his grace. He says, so God sent this to me. One of the 
things we can do is we can totally waste our pain and try to medicate it with the world instead of tap into God's grace that's available for us and he gives us the grace to get through every situation. And for some of you, you are crying out for legitimate things, for God to be just and do what's right in specific situations. And hear me this morning, more than God wanting to give you an earthly thing, he wants to give you himself. He wants to give you his grace. And he's got enough grace to get you through whatever that thing is you're walking through. And they are serious, legitimate things. Whatever the marriage issue is, whatever the diagnosis is, whatever the trial is, whatever the struggle is, the loss of the loved one, there's enough grace to get you through. There's enough mercy to get you through. It doesn't mean we stop seeking his face. In fact, it means we seek his face all the more. It doesn't mean we give up praying. In fact, it means we keep praying all the more. But God's grace is sufficient for us in those times that he says no, in those times that he says wait. And uh, I wanna address two quick bad theologies that we can often get from this um, parable. One of those is that if you just bother God enough, he'll give you what you want, right? If you're just persistent like the widow, God will eventually spit out what you're looking for, right? Follow the formula, push the right buttons, and out comes the gumball that you really want. And that is religion. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. He is not teaching just be persistent and then you'll get what you really want. What God wants to give you is himself. For me to just keep bothering him to get what I really love and what I really want means that I don't want him. And God says, no, I've got you in this situation so that I can be enough for you, so that I can satisfy you, I can sustain you, I can keep you, I can be your strength. That's why you're here. Don't miss it. Don't waste your pain and miss the grace in the middle of it. He's working all things. Every painful moment in your life will be worth it one day. When you meet his face and he says, I gave you the grace to get through that and to navigate that. And now it's done and he wipes your tears and it's eternal pleasure and joy forevermore. He's got grace available to you. That's one that if we just follow the formula, we'll get what we want. Um, The other one, and uh, this one is one that I hate, is that if you seek the Lord and if you don't get what you're praying for, it's because you didn't have enough faith. And church, hear me say, that is a lie from the pit of hell. That if you seek the Lord and you pray for something and God doesn't give you what you want, that is your fault. You didn't have enough faith. You didn't believe him enough. You didn't trust him enough. The strength of our faith, the power of our faith, the source of our faith, the strength of our prayers is not in our faith. Jesus says all you need is a mustard seed. The power and the strength of our faith is in the object of the one that we've got our faith in. It's not in your faith. It's not in your ability. You just have to believe a little more and then you might get what you want. Satan would love to convince you that the fact that you lost someone or the fact that the diagnosis came back is because you didn't love God enough. That is biblically not true at all. God in his grace and in his infinite wisdom allows his children for some reason to still experience the brokenness of this world until he returns. He just does. Why does he do it? So that you and I will walk more intimately and closely with him and he will be our strength. He will sustain us and he will keep us through. He's got grace that's sufficient to get you through what you're going through. 
And if God doesn't give you what you're praying for, do not believe for a second that it's because you didn't believe enough or you didn't have enough faith. God's kind and gracious and wants you to seek him in the midst of that. A couple of crazy examples of this is um, if you look at Hebrews 11, and we won't read the whole thing, um, it's the hall of faith. Um, some of you have heard that term before. Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith you know, Sarah, Rahab, all these people, and talks about all the incredible things that they did um, by faith, by trusting in the Lord. And I don't want to, you know, diminish any of that. Like, I don't know what kind of faith it takes to take my son up on a mountain with a knife and no sacrifice and literally plan to sacrifice my own child. Like, that takes a lot of faith, right? But at the same time, I want to show that these people weren't perfect either, right? They were drunks, they were adulterers, they were murderers, like all these things, right? God uses broken people. That's all he has to work with, right? Other than his own son who accomplished the work in our place. But until he returns, he's got us, right? Broken people. But if you look at Hebrews 11, all these people that did these incredible things by faith, and they do some awesome things. Um, Verse 33, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 34, they quenched the power of the fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. And then the verse chapter mood starts to change. And what does he say? Some were tortured. We're like, oh, um, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts or about in deserts and mountains and dens and the caves of the earth, right? They did incredible things and they still experienced the brokenness of this world. They were persecuted for following Jesus. They still didn't have an easy life. And here's what I want you to see at the end. Verse 39, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What's he saying here is that all of these people, although they experienced a little bit of God's justice, a little bit of God's blessing, they did not experience, they they got the shadow. They didn't get the full and final substance. What I mean by that is Moses, right? Moses got to experience a little bit of freedom from bondage to Egypt. But even after Egypt, was Moses still bound? He sure was by his sin. He did not get complete freedom. Joshua got to go into the promised land. He got a little bit of what God had promised, but he didn't get the full thing. Why? Because even in the promised land, there was sin, there was disobedience, there was deceit, there was theft, all of the things. He did not get to fully and finally experience the land of milk and honey. Why? Because God was showing that even in those people, It wasn't the earthly thing that was gonna satisfy. The thing that was gonna satisfy is when Jesus Christ fully and finally showed up, lived the life they couldn't live, died the death that they deserved, and won for us eternal life in Christ, in God, and all of us could experience the full freedom and the full exodus and the full promised land of milk and honey eternally together for all time. That's the goodness of what God is doing in Christ, that even those people didn't get all that God had promised. 
They still had a hard road, but God's grace was sufficient to get them through. Um, one of my favorite verses on prayer is in Daniel chapter three, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar's commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to bow down to the gold, to the statue. And uh, I want you to see what they say. I think this should be our heart when it comes to prayer. Um, in verse 17, uh, they say this. He's ready to throw them in. They say, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He's able to, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is able to do it. Our God will do it. But even if he doesn't, his grace is sufficient for me and I will look to no other to satisfy my soul. If he doesn't give me the thing that I'm praying for, he will give me more of himself to get me through the suffering. And it will be enough for me. It will get me through. It will sustain me. In fact, it will be better for me to walk more intimately with him than for me to get the earthly relief I'm looking for. That's where we have to get. And that takes a lot of faith. And by God's grace, he'll get us there. So let's jump back into the parable. I just wanted to dive into justice and all those things for just a minute. But if you look at verse four, so you've got this woman, much like us, she's helpless. She's crying out to her judge for justice. And here's what happens. For a while, he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Some of you, as I read that, you might think of uh, Samson in the book of Judges, right? Samson's the biggest, strongest, fastest, quickest. No man can stop him. And then there's Delilah, right? Right? And Samson ends up doing things he swore he would never do. And uh, that's the power of a persistent woman, right? I didn't say it. Scripture said it. But you see it happen right here. No man can sway him. And then Delilah shows up. And she's persistent. And here he goes. And you've got this king. And he, notice what he does though. This is so fascinating. So fascinating. And what I want you to see here is the point is not that it was the persistence of, um, or the point that Jesus is making is not um, about our persistence, although he says don't give up. But the reason we don't give up is notice what he's contrasting over and over and over again. Three times he talks about the character of the unrighteous judge. He says he doesn't fear God, he doesn't fear man. He says that twice. Like what kind of judge would say, though I don't fear God and don't fear man, I'll give you that. No, it's Jesus adding that to show us the character of the judge. He calls him unrighteous once and he says he doesn't fear God or respect man twice. And notice what happens here. Even when this woman comes, this widow comes, this judge is still 100% trying to serve himself. He doesn't go, ooh, this is an opportunity to bless this woman. I can't wait to be an awesome judge and be nice and make her day. The whole act is 100% self-serving. It's get this woman out of here. Stop bothering me. Leave me alone. It's get her away from me. It is still serving self. Get her out of here. She's bothered me enough. I'll give her what she wants. Not because I want to bless her. Not because I want to help her. Not because I want to be good to her. Because I want relief from her, right? He is still serving self. And he gives her the justice that she's looking for, and look at what Jesus says. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
Listen to what he just said. And then he says this in verse seven, and will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The thing he's been comparing the whole time is the character of the two judges. This is what he's getting after. And the word elect there, will God not give justice to his elect? The word elect there means chosen. Now, the point of this morning is not to get into a debate on, you know, God's sovereignty and election and those kind of things. It's another sermon for another day, and we'll gladly jump into that. Um, But it means God's chosen people, his children. And whether you think you chose him or he chose you is beside the point this morning, but it's God's children. And we can dance around that word, but I don't want us to avoid it this morning because I think that's the strength of the passage. That's the thrust It's the main point. Unlike this king who has no fear of God, right? No moral obligation, no compassion towards others. He does not know this woman who does not care about this woman. He does not care about God, which means he doesn't give a rip about what's true, what's right, what's pure. Unlike that judge, the point of this parable is we have a judge who loves you. He desperately loves you. So much so that Jesus appeals to the fact that he chose you before the foundation of the world. If this scum of a judge who doesn't care about this woman will be kind to her and give her what she's asking, how much more will a God who chose you before the foundation of the world and lived for you and died for you and shed his blood to purchase you, how much more does he long for you to seek his face in prayer and to run after him? And how much more does he long to give you what you're asking for and to give good gifts to his children? Ephesians 1, look at what Christ has done for us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on on earth. That's the God who longs for you to pray for him, pray to him, seek his face. The one who chose you, predestined you, sanctified you, made you holy, redeemed you, forgave you, adopted you. He's longing for you to come. That's the judge that we pray to. He longs for you to bring your cares to him because he cares for you. And if a sorry judge will act that way, do you think a holy God will not act on behalf of those he chose before the foundation of the world and lived for and died for. You better believe he will. See, we are as hopeless as the woman and as helpless as the woman, but the good news is that we have a judge that is unlike the judge that the woman had. We have a different judge. And like I said, the point's not to just be persistent for persistence sake. The point's not to put the formula in to get what we really want. The point is the character of the judge that we're praying to. Look at verse eight. He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And notice the promise of verse eight. Although you might not get what you're praying for in this life, it's coming. God will give justice. 
Jesus is telling us, God's gonna bring it. If there's one thing you don't have to persuade God to do, it's to be just. He will be just. He can't not be just. Everything he does is just. That's not the thing we have to worry about. God sees every injustice, every bit of sickness and sadness and brokenness as a result of sin. All of it's going to be avenged. All of it's gonna be redeemed. All of it's gonna be paid for. All of it gets addressed. Not a single sin escapes his sight. In fact, that word speedily is actually how the Bible ends. Where in Revelation 22, um, it ends with, he who testifies to these things, Jesus says, surely I am coming soon. That word soon there in the Greek is the same word speedily. God promises us as the scriptures end that, hey, my justice is coming. My righteousness is coming. I am coming soon. If you're suffering in this room this morning, hear me. God's justice is on the way. It's coming. And although we might not, in God's kindness, he could grant whatever you're asking for, when you're asking for it, but although we might not see it, we can know it's coming, and in the meantime, he's gonna give us the grace to, to endure. He will give us what we need. The real question is not, will God be just? The question is, is the same question Jesus ends with, is will he find us faithful? Will he find his children seeking after his face, seeking after his goodness, trusting him and not giving up, not being discouraged, not giving in, trusting that his grace is sufficient enough to get us through every moment, to get us through every lack, to get us through every hardship? Will he find us faithful? Will he find us holding on to the gospel, obeying the gospel, trusting in the gospel? If you look at church history, who's been more faithful? God to his people or his people to his word? God is assuring us he will be just. He is. He can't not be. The question this morning is, will we be faithful to keep running after him, to hold on, to keep trusting in his grace, to keep trusting in his goodness, to keep seeking his face. He told this parable so that we would keep praying, that we ought always to pray and not lose heart. Justice is on the way, and he's got grace for you in the meantime, so keep running after him, church. He will make all things right. He's promised he will do that. But will we keep holding on to his word and holding fast to it until then? Because the goodness of the gospel is God is infinitely better than this earthly judge. We're infinitely more worse off than this woman. And I would argue that more urgently than God needing to do what's just out there and God dealing with that injustice is more urgent than that is we need God to deal with the injustice in here. And the goodness of the gospel is that the only one who was ever just, the only one who ever lived a just and righteous and good life went to a cross and died the death for the unjust so that we as completely unjust could be seen as just and righteous before him. We could never be good enough. We could never be just enough. And the only just one came and absorbed God's justice in our place. That's the goodness of the gospel. And now there's grace for us to keep running after him, to keep seeking him, to keep praying to him. And what's so fascinating, and we'll end with this, is that even then, I still leave here going, but I don't pray as much as I should. I don't pray like I should. 
And what's so incredible about the gospel, and I really hope this encourages you, is not only um, do we fail to pray, and not only do we have the just in our place, Jesus who died the unjust, um, died in the place of unjust people so that we could be seen as just, but there is someone who's praying more persistently than the woman. And it's Jesus at the right hand of the Father, continually praying for every time I sin. He's saying, I've got that, I've paid for that, my blood covered that. He is interceding and praying to the Father on my behalf as my substitute, as my righteousness, as my judge, as I continually sin, saying that's paid for, that's covered, my blood covered that. And not only that, not only is he in heaven praying to the Father continuously, more persistently than this woman on my behalf, he's also given his spirit inside of me. And as Romans 8 says, as I don't know how to pray as I should, his own spirit Spirit in me is praying to the Father with groans too deep for words. That I don't even know what to pray, and the Spirit's praying on my behalf. That the Son is at the Father praying on my behalf. The Spirit is inside of me praying on my behalf. And the gospel is at work in my life, and all I do is just receive it, completely deserving of God's wrath and His justice. And He gives me His mercy and His grace, and it's free. And the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as the Spirit's interceding for me with groanings too deep for words and the Son's interceding for me, what he is asking is, will I be faithful? Will you be faithful to keep running after his face? To keep being dependent on his grace? He has grace for every need in your life. So church, whatever you're going through, cancer, struggling marriage, parenting teenagers, Whatever it is, will you be found faithful to keep running after the Lord? There is mercy and grace available for you and his justice is coming. So do not give up. Do not lose heart. Let's be a people holding tight to the gospel. Second Peter says, God is not slow to fulfill his promises as we would count slowness. God's not being slow. He's being patient. He's being merciful desiring that we might come to him in repentance and faith. But it's coming, so hold on. He's got grace for you. He's given us his word, he's given you his spirit, and he's given you the church so that we might all persevere and encourage one another to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, thanks for your word. Father, there's so much in the gospel that we often forget. God, there's so much in this text that is so glorious God, that you would do all of this for broken sinners like me. God, the only reason is the heart of the judge. God, that you have compassion, that you are the standard of morality and what's good and right and just. You're compassionate towards sinners. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that although I am weak, although I continue to sin, although that I have so much brokenness in my own life and my own family, God, your grace is enough to get us through. God, that you see it all. And one day it will either be punished on those that commit it and stand before you and give an account for their own righteousness or it will be put on your son. But no sin goes unpunished. So God, help us to trust in your goodness and your kindness and your sovereignty over our lives and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.